This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience. And stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everyone, this is Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And this episode is about one of the longest-simmering resentments in rock history. We're both excited to talk about this, I think, because we care about this band a lot. But it's also pretty melancholy for me. This is like one of the saddest rivalries because I feel like there's so much wasted potential in this story. No matter all the great things that these two people were able to achieve together, you feel like ah, they could have just gotten their acts together. They could have done so much more. So much great music, so much warm friendship just was completely wasted. You're right. It's the original story, I think, of commerce getting in the way of great music and friendship. It's a really heartbreaking tale. It is. If we were two baby boomers, we'd be talking about the lost innocence of the 60s right now. <laughs> you know, in a very serious Jan Winner type voice. But we're not. We're not. We're not baby boomers. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, but we do love the band, not a band, the band. And the th- band. The rivalry we're talking about is Robbie Robertson versus Levon Helm. And I feel like this story has fresh relevance right now because at the time that we're recording this, there's a new documentary that is out. It's called Once We're Brothers. It's a documentary that goes over the band's story. I mean, I feel like there's been lots of documentaries about the band or lots of books about them. And I know that we have both have seen it, and I, we'll probably talk about it later in this episode, but I think it's fair to say that this documentary will not bring closure to this story. If anything, it'll only intensify this rivalry even more, just because it's told from the perspective of Robbie Robertson, basically. However you want to look at it, if you want to look at it as convenient or, or cheap or, or whatever it is, he waited to make this movie as well as write his book that came out in, uh, I think it was 2016, called Testimony. He waited to do all these things until most of the guys in the band were dead and can't respond. Yeah. And then the one guy who was alive, Garth Hudson, isn't interviewed in the he's movie. He's not saying much. Well, he's not. No. And he's not. I don't know if he was asked to be interviewed. The movie doesn't really. I think he was asked. He 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 just doesn't feel like talking. 
he kind of does his own thing up in uh, upstate, upstate New York. So, I mean, that's the impression I got from the movie. There's some really cool stuff in it. Uh, great footage. The footage Especially- is amazing. It, it, it's kind of, it's the flip side of the Leave on Helm documentary from 2013, uh, Ain't It For My Health. Right. In, in every sense of the word. You've got, Robbie's documentary is incredibly slick, well-produced. You had Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese as executive producers. Uh, all sorts of high-profile friends, Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, uh, just so many people in there. It's tells the story of the band's glory days from their days back in Ronnie Hopkins to The Last Waltz. You Then you have Levon's documentary, very personal, very intimate, very sort of handheld, and it's his, the, his last days, essentially. Brutal footage of him in a doctor's office having his throat checked out for cancer, just really raw and rough. And I think those two documentaries really underscore the difference between the two men. You've got this brutal, almost personal, unflattering in a way, documentary from Levon, and then this very, very, very slick, polished, I don't want to say Hollywood, but that's kind of the perfect word for it, documentary from Robbie. And I, as a fan, I enjoyed them both, but you're right, it's not going to bring any closure to people who are Team Levon or Team Robbie. Yeah, in a way, you wish that maybe they could edit those two movies together to get a monster yeah. <laughs> band documentary. But I think, <laughs> yeah. I think, Jordan, it comes down on us to offer the truly comprehensive and uh, nonpartisan view of this feud. So uh, let's get into this mess. Levon Helm, the drummer of the band, he's born in 1940 in Elaine, Arkansas. He grows up in a town called Turkey Scratch, which... You can't make that up. You can't make that up. I feel like that should be the name of a band album. You know, Turkey Scratch. (laughs) So... Levon basically grows up around some of the most iconic American music of the 20th century. When he's uh, six years old, he sees Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys, and that inspires him to become a musician. And as he's growing up, he sees all manner of icons of great blues and early rock and roll and and R&B, people like Elvis Presley, Bo Diddley, Conway Twitty. Sonny Boy Williamson. Sonny Boy Williamson. But perhaps the most important encounter that he has early in his life is meeting a guy called Ronnie Hawkins, who was a regional rockabilly singer, popular in the South as well as Canada. Um, and when Levon was 17, he was invited to join Ronnie's band. And it's interesting at that time, because like I said, they played a lot in the South and they played in Canada. Like these were like the rockabilly strongholds of like the late 50s and early 60s. So at one point, They're playing up in Toronto, Canada, and Ronnie comes across this guitar player playing in a band. I believe the band was called the Swades. Uh, It went through many different incarnations, but in, in, in 59, when Hawkins saw them, they were called the Swades. And the guitar player's name was Jamie Robertson, but he, of course, he would be known to the world later on as Robbie Robertson. And in the early 60s, I mean, he is one of the great sort of white rock blues guitar players at that time like and again this is like even before like someone like eric clapton was doing this on records um so he joins ronnie hawkins band and this is the beginning of 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 robbie and levon's partnership by 1961 hawkins band has recruited other canadian musicians into his band including garth hudson rick danko and richard manuel 
And this is the classic lineup of the band known as the Hawks. And of course, this is, this is the group that will become the band. Moving forward into like the mid-60s, the Hawks, they end up being on their own. They're playing clubs. They're this sort of bluesy rock R&B band. They get to know a guy named John Hammond, who is a sort of a folk blues singer. He makes a record in 64 called So Many Roads, which is a really good record, by the way. And Robbie's guitar playing on that record is really great. That's how the Hawks come to the attention of a guy called Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan is loves this band and he decides that he's going to hire them for his first electric tour in the mid 60s. And of course, we all know Dylan and the Hawks, 1966, one of the most legendary rock tours of all time. And I'm sure you've dug deep into those recordings. I mean, they're phenomenal. It's like some of the best live rock and roll of all time. And it helps to create the legend around this band. By the end of that tour, the Hawks are up in Woodstock. They're starting to do their own thing. They have their own record contract. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. They're also collaborating with Bob Dylan on what will eventually be known as the Basement Tapes. Finally, they emerge as the band in 1968 with an album called Music from Big Pink. Perhaps you've heard it, Jordan. It's a pretty good album. I've heard a little bit of it. Eh, it's okay. It's, it's pretty good. Moments. It's pretty good. <laughs> that comes out in 68 and 69. They put out their self-titled record known as The Brown Record. Uh, which I think is one of the greatest albums ever made. Uh, certainly yes, one of my favorite, my favorite. albums. And yeah. those two albums, more than anything, create this mythology around the band as one of the great sort of melting pots of American music that's ever existed. Pulling from blues, bluegrass, R&B, folk music, early rock and roll, every kind of music that you would want to hear on one record and synthesizing it in this group where unlike most bands, you know, there's no one focal point. Everyone is on an equal playing field. Everyone is, everyone is a star in this band. And not only three singers, three singers, two drummers. Yeah. And more than just sort of the, the musical melting pot, it really started the, the sort of the mythology of bands going off into the country and kind of being like a musical commune in a way. I mean, right. There's that whole uh, uh, cliche now of go get, going to get it together in the country. But they were sort of the first to really literally go do that and um, live together famously in the the big pink house in uh, in Socrates. There was something um, like very metaphorical and, about them, I think, in the 60s where like people looked at them not just as a great band, but as like, you know, this is like this represents like what society should be this sort of egalitarian utopian we're all in it together all for one one for all uh you know no leaders no egos you know living off the land we're gonna dress like we're you know blacksmiths from the 1890s (laughs) and it's gonna be great you know and this can just go on forever right we can just live in this sort of utopian world uh that's, and it was the era of virtuosos, too. You had like Clapton and Cream and Hendrix. And they, as you were saying, no stars in this band at all. They all, I mean, just really shared the limelight together. It didn't work without the five of them. So you have this great this great setup with the first two records. But of course, nothing can last forever. Certainly not a utopian situation. And by the early 70s, you start to see a couple different things take hold in the band. Number one... Robbie Robertson starts to become the dominant creative force in the group. Whereas like on the first couple records, Richard Manuel was writing songs. Rick Danko was writing songs. 
Robbie is now writing most, if not all, the songs on band records, which is not only a sign of his creative dominance, but is also going to become a sign of his financial dominance because he has a lion's share of the publishing. Um, So you have that taking place. The other thing that's taking place is drug abuse and alcohol abuse is becoming a major deal, especially with the three singers in the band, which again are Levon, Richard Manuel, and Rick Danko. And I think it's fair to say that for a lot of us who love the band, that those three guys are like the heart and soul of the band. Like they're the three coolest guys, you know, they, they kind of define the band ethos. You know, it's like, like you want to be probably one of those three guys more than anybody else. Right. Yeah, Robbie and Garth were, were the brains. And I feel like Rick, Richard and Levon were, were the heart. I think that's a, a very fair assessment and the soul. Um, and, and as you said, the, the, the drugs, sort of correlated to Robbie taking over because he was the only one who really didn't indulge to the same degree that those three did. And they were the three chief songwriters along with Robbie. And so when they just weren't really able to uh, to contribute in the same way that they had, he picked up the slack. Um, and that's kind of the main sticking point between uh, Team Levon and Team Robbie was did he just sort of elbow his way in there and, and throw his weight around and... and demand to write the songs no he he was writing it because as he said and even the other guys would say too that they they weren't able to write at that time they were in the throes of their addictions and it just wasn't happening all right hang on we'll be right back with more rivals when the taliban banned music in afghanistan millions were plunged into silence radios were smashed cassettes burned you could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of us. We're figuring out. And if we had been recording these last 
four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport, and me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. So these dynamics are in play in the band as the 70s progress and as the band is starting to lose some steam creatively and commercially, which brings us to 1976 and probably the most famous thing that the band is associated with, I would say. Um, Certainly, I know for me, when I first started listening to the band, this was my introduction. Like in 1976, they play this big concert at Winterland in San Francisco called The Last Waltz. And the idea was that they were going to play this concert and it was going to be a farewell. You know, we're going to break up, but we're going to end by playing this big party and we're going to invite all of our friends, including Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Eric Clapton, Buddy Waters, just an incredible lineup of artists. And I remember like when I first heard about this, you know, as a young classic rock student You know, when I was a teenager, I thought, wow, what an awesome idea. Like, that's a really cool idea. And then I saw the movie that came out in 78, uh, you know, and I saw it many years after that, and directed by Martin Scorsese. It's an incredible movie, like one of the greatest rock movies ever made. And I had no idea until years later that this movie is, in a way, at the heart of the conflict between Robbie and Levon. I mean, is that fair to say? I mean, I feel like it is. Really, no one else in the band wanted to stop but but Robbie Robertson. And there's two ways to look at it. You have the Levon point of view of Robbie was getting, he had an enormous interest in film and he was getting closer to, and he saw um, uh, Martin Scorsese as an entree into that world, into the very lucrative world of doing film scores and, and soundtrack supervision and stuff like that. And just basically going Hollywood and, and probably in Levon's eyes selling out. But then you have Robbie's point of view of, you know what? I'm, I'm tired. I'm doing a lot of work. I'm, I'm shouldering the psychic burden of all these guys who are really falling apart. Richard Manuel in particular was living in, um, Mr. Ed's converted, uh, um, stable down on a beach in Malibu, just drinking <laughs> bottles and bottles of, uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was when they had the horse uh, who played Mr. Ed on TV. That was his stable. They, Richard Manuel living, they just, just putting away like six, seven, eight bottles of, uh, what was it? Grand Marnier, something like that. A, a day, just really, the vibe was extremely bad. And Robbie had to do a lot of work to keep it running. And the actual touring, it was, in his eyes, really dangerous. He was worried about not only the drugs, but just the actual practical matters of getting around plane crashes and stuff like that. Well, yeah, when you, when you watch the movie, there's like a lot of interview clips of like Robbie Robinson looking very serious. And he's saying, you know. Yeah. 16 years. 15 years. <laughs> 16 like, years on the road. 16 years on the road, man. <laughs> you know, Jimmy, Janice, Elvis, <laughs> you know, they didn't make it, man. You know, and he's like very world weary. And I remember watching that movie as a teenager and just thinking like, wow, this is like so heavy and this is so real. And just thinking like Robbie Robertson looks so cool because his hair is like very well coiffed and he's wearing this like cool leather jacket and just being like, well, man, like Robbie Robertson, like this is his band because you watch that movie and like it's just Robbie Robertson all the time. Like the camera's always cutting to Robbie on stage. He's the main person being interviewed. 
I don't even know if I knew about Richard Manuel because Richard Manuel is barely in the movie. He's and, barely in it. Yeah. And I think, and I think there was some idea of like preservation, uh, you know, that because, because Manuel was in rough shape at that time. And you know, maybe there was some idea that like, we need to protect him and not show him in this movie. But it ended up creating this impression when you watch it, that like Robbie is the main person. And I know for me, like I wasn't aware of how certainly how Levon felt about it until he put out his book, This Wheels on Fire, uh, which came out in 1993. Have you have you read This Wheels on Fire? Excellent book. Yes. And, and it, he talks about a confrontation between Robbie and, and himself when they talk about ending the band. And Robbie says exactly what you said. You know, we've been doing this 16 years and it, 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 it's, it's dangerous. This is not a healthy way of living. And what does what does Levon say? He said, I'm not in it for my health. I'm a musician and I want to live the way I do, which is, you know, that ended up being the name of his documentary, like not in it for my health or ain't it in, for, ain't in it for my health is the name of the documentary. But uh, yeah, I mean, Levon basically, quite a credo. Levon not only, you know, disputes the idea that he wanted to break up the band or that this was a decision that everyone agreed on. He also like talks serious shit about the movie. Like he hates the movie which was really shocking for me to read like when I first read this book. But he talks about – first of all, he, call, he refers to Martin Scorsese as the dummy. He calls him a <laughs> dummy. And I mean I think he was mad because Scorsese and Robertson were such good friends. And I'm sure that was very threatening to him because he knew that that was going to affect – how the movie came out, which it absolutely did. But I, you know, he complains about how Scorsese, in his mind, missed a lot of the great things about that concert. Like he didn't shoot any of the dress rehearsals or any of the behind-the-scenes stuff that Helm writes about. He said that that was some of the best parts of that night. He says that Scorsese came very close to not shooting the Muddy Waters performance, because in favor of Neil Diamond. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and if you watch the movie, and I didn't realize this until I read the book, but if you watch the movie, the Muddy Waters performance, it's all one shot. And it's because they only had one camera on him. And it, so it, it's just, and it, it ends up being fine because it's such a riveting performance. But like cinematically, it's a little boring because it's just one sort of like headshot for about five or six minutes. And, uh, but yeah, they didn't have any any other cameras going, but they did have the whole fleet going for Neil Diamond. And by the way, and and, you know, and and like, look, I like Neil Diamond. I don't want to take shots at Neil Diamond, but like he, Levon takes a lot of shots at Neil Diamond. And and I think justifiably, because he's like, why is Neil Diamond here? You know, like yeah, these are everybody that's on the lineup are friends of theirs and had a huge role in their musical history. And then there's Neil Diamond, and Robbie says, oh, no, he represents the sort of brill-building era of songwriting. That was a huge influence on me. And then it comes out that Robbie's producing a album for him at the time, and Be- Neil Diamond actually performs the song that Robbie wrote for him, Dry which wound up in the film and on the soundtrack, and probably Dry earned ass. Robbie, not to, not to take shots, but probably earned Robbie some extra money. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it was definitely, uh, if, if you're going to cut one of the greatest blues musicians of all time for Neil Diamond doing a song that isn't even one of his hits. Yeah. That's a pretty, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a bold way to go. Um, and something I just want to say too, just while we're talking about Robbie's perceived dominance in the film, I think it's important to note that 
when Robbie first joined the Hawks in the early 60s, Levon was sort of the old hand there. He took him under his wing and really showed him the ropes. I mean, Robbie was this, I mean, he was a great guitar player, but he was a young, inexperienced kid. And then all through the early 60s, when they broke away from Ronnie Hopkins, the, the band was called uh, Levon and the Hawks. It was very much his band. All those early contracts were in his name. It was, it was, he was kind of running the show in a lot of ways. And then when they were on the Bob Dylan tour in uh, in 65 and getting booed all over England, uh, Levon quit. He went and, and famously went down to New Orleans to work on an oil rig. And because he just couldn't, he didn't understand why they were just, music's supposed to make people happy and feel good. Now they're just going, slugging, traipsing all over Europe, just getting booed. And he didn't really see much of the point of it. And that was kind of the moment when, the band wasn't his anymore. And it, it kind of also speaks to their both of their approaches to music. Levon wants music to feel good, make people happy. Robbie was sort of willing to do whatever it took and become friendly with whatever it took, be it Bob Dylan, his manager, Albert Grossman, who became the band's manager and was hugely influential in their, their career and their financial dealings. And later on, Martin Scorsese, he, Robbie was very good at, at convincing hip people that he was also really, really hip and ingratiating himself with them. So for Levon later on, who remembers this kid as being this young 16, 17-year-old Canadian kid who knew nothing about, in a personal sense, Southern rock and roll and all the stuff that he loved to play, it must have been particularly galling. I mean, for all the guys in the band, but especially someone like Levon who remembers him as this, this young and experienced kid. And yet, with all of his misgivings about the movie, and this blows me away about it, Levon steals the movie as far as I'm concerned. Like the best parts of the movie are with Levon Helm. And I'm thinking of his performance of the night they drove old Dixie down, which is incredible. Oh God, yeah. And like, you know, the, uh, the up on Cripple Creek is awesome. Like the, the, the part where it's like, I sure, you guys, I sure could wish I could. Yeah. I, I'm trying to do a Levon Helm impression. It's awful. But like, <laughs> was good, yeah. he does this like drum solo and like, you know, the, these drum rolls, it's awesome. And like, you know, at the beginning, like, baby, don't do it. Just like he looks, oh, yeah. like he looks amazing. He sounds amazing. Even like in the interviews, which in his book he talks about how he hated doing the interviews for the movie. He's very charming in the movie. You know, he's talking about like the you know back in Arkansas going to see you know old blues people and like the lights would go down and the girls would start shaking it and all that kind of stuff. It's like he's such a great storyteller and he's and it's like man, even if you were miserable doing this, which he says he was. He's so charming in the movie and he's like such a big part of it. But again, I think the big conflict with this movie, along with Levon just not liking the movie itself, was this idea that in his mind, he felt that Robbie unilaterally decided that the band was done and he didn't want it to be done. And as a matter of fact, the band ended up reuniting uh, in the early 80s without Robbie for a run that. I think eventually yielded some good music, especially as you got into the early 90s. Uh, there's like some pretty cool records, I think, that the band put out at that time that are a little underrated. But when they first got back together in the early 80s, it seems like it was kind of depressing. I mean, that they were playing out-of-the-way venues, uh, not making a lot of money. And it all culminates with the suicide of Richard Manuel, uh, who ends up – I mean, he hung himself in a hotel room while they were on the road uh, in 1986. Uh, which is just about the worst death that I could imagine for a musician as great as him. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely heartbreaking. His, his wife found him and called Levon in. And that really, he, um, in a lot of ways, blamed Robbie. He, he would say uh, that it was his fault that they were sort of doing these, these out-of-the-way places. Well, because th- there's some controversy about the last waltz in that Robbie later said that he didn't mean to kill the band completely. He just wanted to get off the road. He thought that they were all going to come. He says this in Once We're Brothers. I thought we were all going to come back in the studio and be a studio entity and, and continue to make music like we had. And everybody forgot to come back is the quote that he says in the movie. That, now, when the That seems very fishy to me because... Why no, would, I, I, I agree. Why would you call it the last waltz? And why would... I don't know. There's such a feeling of finality in that movie, yeah. not just for the band, but also it is in a way like a wave of the hand of the 60s too like this generation maybe because just the symbolism of that movie coming out when it did right when punk and new wave were breaking and there was this other generation coming and now here are all these boomer era musicians playing a show called the last waltz of course none of those musicians actually retired i mean they all continue to have pretty big careers after that but for robbie to now say 40 years later that i wasn't actually pulling the plug on the band with that show. I don't know. I, that seems pretty disingenuous to me. Oh, I, I agree. So, But when the, the band came together in the early 80s, um, Levon considered not even inviting Robbie, but they ended up inviting him, and, and he refused because he just said, you know, we just put out this huge movie and triple disc set about how we're not doing this anymore. And I'm like, and you know, and he was, and I'm like, and I'm like doing music for Scorsese movies right now. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm scoring the King of Comedy in After Hours. I don't need to uh, hang out with you guys anymore. Yeah, in like some like Orlando suburb playing (laughs) like a supper club. Yeah, no, I mean it's true. I mean that's the kind of it's amazing to think that in five years since the last waltz, they're playing these like backwater. I mean, no offense to anyone in the Orlando suburbs, but these these little, little rooms in the middle of nowhere. And it, it, it's shocking. And and I think that between the pressing nature of the gigs they were playing, financial troubles, because Robbie, I guess, according to Levon's book, had convinced um, Garth, Rick, and Richard to sell their shares in the band's music to him for some short-term cash, which then, of course, meant that they wouldn't get any royalties anymore, which forced them to... to go out on the road and play these kind of rough gigs. Uh, Levon essentially blamed Robbie for, for working uh, Richard and Rick into the grave. Yeah. And, it was almost, almost his exact words. And again, like Rick Danko ended up passing away at, in 1999. Um, so he very lived, young, 56. Yeah. And, and, you know, after a lot of hard years, you know, of like drug and alcohol abuse, uh, he ended up giving out. One, again, you know, we've talked a lot about Levon's voice, but, you know, Richard and Rick, two of the great rock singers of all time. I mean, and it's just amazing that <laughs> these three guys were in the same band. I mean, because they, the three of them oh. really are, like, among the greatest rock singers ever. And they each had their own qualities Very to their voice. Voices. Very distinctive Yeah, my, my favorite scene in The Last Waltz is um, Shape I'm In. I know that's like Richard's one moment, and he, he does look frail, and he does look rough, but he just the power that's still there, even though you can see sort of fear in his eyes and, and, and the pain that's there. I, I just think that's an incredible performance, well, and especially and knowing, knowing the road that he was going down. It's all the more amazing that he was able to give it that, that power. Well, and you, know, and you can't say enough about it makes no difference 
from The Last Waltz, oh, which is the God. definitive oh, yeah. performance of that song. And I love that scene. In a way, a scene that's even more heartbreaking than that is when Rick Danko plays Spill the Wine for Scorsese, oh. a, a track from his first solo record. And there's just something so melancholy about that scene because you you just get the sense of, like, okay, what what am I going to do now? You know, like, I, I don't have my band anymore and I'm... And, this is what I'm doing now. This is, there's just sort of a sadness to that whenever I watch that. So that decision to end the band with the Last Waltz concert, along with all the other tensions that were existing creatively within the group, coming down to the issue of like who is the author of this music, which I think Robbie ended up taking control of that as the songwriter of the band. But then I think Levon in his book, and I think subsequently made a pretty strong case that it wasn't about the songs, it was about the sound of the band and the way that they played together and the, what the band was a, as an idea. And that as great as the weight is as a song, that the reason why that song is a classic is because the band plays it and because Levon sings it and Rick comes in, I think it's on the fifth verse and he has his great verse. You know, if those guys weren't there to interpret those songs or to bring those songs to life, that they wouldn't have meant what they eventually did to all of us who love the band. I think it's two things. I think it's it's the question of the arrangement and what the band as a whole brought to those songs. And there's the, like, I think it was Levon said, you know, Robbie Robertson's uh, credit is on, her name is on the credit for chest, chest fever. What do you think of when you think of that song? Do you think of any of the words? No. You think of Garth Hudson's incredible organ breaks and he's not credited for that at all. So I think it's a question of arrangement. But then for Levon personally, so much of what Robbie is writing about is his own life and right. his own past in a, in a very literal sense with a song like the night they drove old Dixie down, which what the, the song lyrics were taken from a discussion that Robbie had with Levon's father who said one night, you know, Robbie he was, he was kind of kidding, but he said, you know, Robbie, one day the South will rise again. And Robbie never forgot that. And not, not too long after he, uh, he, he started writing the night they old Dixie, they, they drove old Dixie down, uh, based on that conversation. So I think Levon basically felt you stole my, my life. You took my life and made a ton of money off of it. Yeah. I mean, that that must've been really galling as well. Yeah. I don't think there's any question that like Levon was Robbie's muse, you know, especially like early on in the band's career. And, you know, there's always this discussion about like great American bands, and people bring up the band as a great American band. And I always say, well, you know, they're four-fifths <laughs> Canadian, you know. They're not really Americans. But Levon's personality as the only Southerner in the band is so strong that they seem quintessentially American. And Robbie was able to write these songs that utilized Levon's strengths as a singer and as a musician and as well as the strengths of the other guys in the band. Um so yeah, it's the outsider perspective too, being able to sort of appreciate from an outsider. You know, spectator sees more of the game. They're able to kind of see, appreciate the history and 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 the foibles in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of the lyrics of some of the songs, especially ones that have to do with the South, when you actually read the lyrics, are are kind of uncomfortable reads. Um, especially a song like "The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down." I mean, it, it it's it's. A lot of ways that about a part of American history that we as Americans aren't particularly proud of. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and singing it from a perspective 
basically it's a pro I won't say it's a pro confederacy song but it's a song that's empathetic with it's the a, confederacy yeah, yeah. side and, it, and it, it's sung from the perspective of someone who is mourning the death of the confederacy which you know in 2020 we don't really like to mourn that, you know, but at the same time, you can still appreciate that as a beautiful expression of loss. I feel like, you know, before we get into our like pro Levon and pro Robbie segments, there's one more wrinkle to this story that really muddles it even more, you know, and, and makes it sadder, which is Levon's death, uh, which was in, tw- in 2012. And there was a story about how. Robbie basically showed up at the end of Levon's life, went to the hospital uh, and, and, and sat by his bedside. And to hear Robbie tell it, he felt that there was some moment of reconciliation at that time, some moment of understanding between the two. Because up until that point, they had continued feuding for decades. Pretty much I think since they'd the only spoken the once since the late 70s. Yeah. But Levon was unconscious at this time and, you know, there's no way that he could have actually known that Robbie was there. And, you know, depending on And those close to Levon say that if he'd known Robbie was there, he probably would have thrown him out. And he was in no mood to to want to reconcile. He, until the end of his life and interviews that he gave and in his book, kind of put the deaths of Richard and Rick squarely at Robbie's feet. For right or wrong, it was... what he believed and you, you watch in his documentary he basically says the same thing so you hear this story and if you are sympathetic to robbie you would look at it as maybe a beautiful moment between two old friends that they could have this you know bedside redemption type moment and if you love levon or you're pro levon and anti robbie it just seems like the crassest thing that robbie has done yet you know essentially using levon's death as a way to redeem himself in the public eye. Um, and we'll get into this, I guess, as we move in you know, a little bit deeper into the podcast. I, I don't really know how I feel about it. I feel, like, uh, I feel like I used to be pretty strongly on one side and I've moved more towards the middle as I've gotten a little bit older. Yeah, I'm very conflicted. I, I mean, it's important to note that for all of Levon's venom and, and bile, uh, Robbie never really responded with that kind of, uh, he never responded in kind. He was always very complimentary uh, about his his music and their friendship and how much it had meant to him. You could argue that Robbie could afford to be complimentary because he's making a ton of money, not only with all the band royalties, but also all the money that he's making doing being Scorsese's musical buddy. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's difficult because in some ways... You could paint Levon, you know, every, I remember doing stuff in science class when you have like your partner with like a bad lab partner. It seems like Levon in a lot, sometimes was the bad lab partner. He, he, you have the one who has to kind of pick up the slack and, and do all this extra work. And I think that that Robbie felt put upon most of the time, especially by the, uh, the mid seventies well, uh, to, to have to keep that up. Well, and, and what you've just articulated is, is essentially the pro-Robbie argument. Like if we were going to make a pro-Robbie argument, we would say that he was the guy, that he was the responsible one, that he was the dad of the band, and that he was left holding the bag time and again, especially in the early 70s when uh, you know the three singers were falling apart. Um, and it created a burden where it was either sink or swim for him, and he chose to swim. And... 
if the other guys eventually sank, is that his fault or are these other guys responsible for their own fates? We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of us. We're figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it it would have been been juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'll say, and I alluded to this earlier, that I've always been a strongly pro-Levon person. And I had the opportunity to interview Robbie Robertson recently, a year or two ago. And talking to him and hearing him talk about Levon with what I feel was genuine affection. I felt like it was, like, he felt genuine love, or at least (laughs) maybe he's so good at telling these stories that he can just affect that. (laughs) But anyway, it worked on me. Um, I I felt more amenable to that argument that he tried his best and that essentially he eventually had to decide to save himself because he wasn't going to be able to save these other guys. Um, So I think that's the pro-Robbie side, and I am sympathetic to that. But going to the pro-Levon side, which I've always been very strongly pro-Levon, and I I would say that I still am with those qualifications that I just mentioned, that in terms of the band 
and what they represent and what their music was. I think his argument that it was more about the band and the way that they played the songs and the way that they sang it and the way they arranged it more than the songs themselves. I think that's a very credible argument. And because I think that that is the magic of that group. I think that if Robbie Robertson had played the night they drove old Dixie down as a Dylan-esque solo songwriter, or if he had played up on cripple Creek as a solo singer songwriter, they would have sounded hokey. They would not be rock classics. I agree, but I, I think that it, it's a question of songwriting versus arrangement. I And I, I completely agree that the band were the band because it was the five of them. And you look at basically all the music that they made separately from Levon's albums that were primarily covers. Even the people that he worked with said that went, even the songs that he's credited on, he really didn't do much. I think even um, his uh, band leader in later years, I think his name was Larry Campbell, said that in an interview. And then Robbie's stuff, to me, just felt a little clinical. And, or, I don't know. It never really resonated with me the same way. But I think technically Robbie did write the songs and he was entitled to the money for writing those songs. I And I, I almost wonder why they didn't just credit songs to the band because the band as a whole did play such a huge role in in the overall sound. And there, there was a precedent for that. The Doors had done that for the first couple albums. And then later on, even you've got bands like U2 who will say words by Bono and music by U2. And, I, and that could have been the best way to do it. Words by Robbie Robertson, music by the band. And I, I never really understood why. Um, and there are a lot of pro Robbie people that say, well, why didn't when Levon was looking at the Brown album and noticed that Robbie was on all the songs and Levon really wasn't, was only on, I think, one or two. Um why they didn't retroactively fix those. And it, it, there's that's been done. Mike Love did that with Brian Wilson in the 90s for some of the uh, the Beach Boys hits that he felt he'd contributed to. Um, and it, yeah, it's interesting why uh, they didn't remedy that at the time. And there's some people say that's suspicious of Levon that he only in later years when he was hurting financially was uh, complaining about that. Do I, do I think he's a right to be pissed? Yes. But it, it's... It's sort of the injustice of how we credit songs and how we pay songwriters for for royalties and publishing. Yeah, I, think. I mean, and it's more of an indictment of that system. Well, I think that there's two different issues here. There is the issue that you're just talking about, which is the financial issue, which is who gets paid for what. And you're right, Robbie Robertson is the person credited with writing those songs. He and I have no doubt that he took a leading role in shaping those songs um but i think the other issue is more of i guess like a spiritual credit or like how Mm. we or how we contextualize uh like who makes the music and who is the leader of the band because i feel like for a long time that when people talked about the band they talked about it as robbie robertson's band and i think that had a lot to do with the last waltz you know for me coming into that movie like I said, you know, I didn't grow up in the 60s. I didn't have any of that context. I only knew this movie. And from that movie, I got the impression that he was the guy and that it was his band and that these other guys were almost like his backing musicians. And the the degree to which that's deliberate, we can talk about that. There, you know, Robbie might say that he didn't intend for that impression to come across. I'm sure Levon would have a different opinion of that. Um, but... Because Robbie wrote, I'm sorry, because Levon wrote his book, 
I think that was the beginning of people having this conversation about, okay, who actually deserves the credit for this and how evenly should it be distributed? And the sad thing to me about Once We're Brothers is the subtitle of it, which is Robbie Robertson and the band. And it almost seems, and I don't know, I mean, look, it's possible that Robbie did not title the movie, you know, like it could have been the director, it could have been anyone else. But the impression that that gives to me is that it's him reasserting his authorship and his dominance of the band and putting himself up front. And when you watch the movie, it is a story essentially about him coming into the band and then at some point deciding that these guys are too fucked up. I need to save myself. I need to be with my wife and family and do my own thing. Um, And that to me, it's just a distortion of what made that band great. Um, You know, even if you want to say, okay, the songwriting credits are his, he gets the money. That's fine. But if we're going to talk about, the magic of that band. And we're going to talk about, again, I guess if you want to call it spiritual credit or whatever you want to call it, I think it should be spread out. And I think in that respect, Levon definitely has a point. Absolutely. I mean, spiritual credit, credit, no question at all. I mean, I think that, I think it's very much, I I, I know I I use the Lennon-McCartney dichotomy probably way too much, but I I think Levon very much has the John Lennon role of of having the charisma and the aggression and the attitude that had to be shaped by somebody and and kind of formed and packaged into something that that otherwise wouldn't have have been focused um, and I think that that's uh, where Robbie came in, somebody who had very um, intellectual aspirations and commercial aspirations, too. Um, and I think he took Robbie's um, attitude and in some cases his past, like we were talking about the night that Joe Dixie down, um, and, and, and turned it into something. And I think when they were apart, it was never – it, it never worked. You had – you look at their solo albums. You look at Levon's – what was the uh, RCO album? And it was uh, – a lot of kind of bar band covers and it was great expertly performed and, and a really fun to listen to, but th- there was something a little hollow to it. And I, I feel that way about Robbie's um, it, it was missing that, that warmth and charisma that Levon brought to it. I disagree a little bit. I actually like that first Robbie Robertson record that Daniel Lenoir did, which is like, and it's a pretty overblown record and it feels very Dan- Daniel Lenoir heavy because it's very atmospheric and kind of swampy and smoky. I think that album like is 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 pretty good, and I actually like the Levon Helm albums that he made toward the end of his life, with like like, like Dirt Farmer and Electric Dirt. Oh, Dirt, yeah, yeah. He liked to have the word "dirt" in album titles for whatever reason, <laughs> but uh, you know he kind of hit upon this very easygoing Americana sound that I think suited them well. Um, I mean, not earth shattering records, but I think they're pretty good. Um, but you're right. I mean, obviously, they never did anything as good as music from Big Pink or the band or even like records like Stage Fright or Cahoots, you know, which are both, I think, diminished in comparison to the first two records. But I think are you, by any other standard, I think they're pretty strong albums. I mean, I, I, I'm of the opinion that the band continued to make pretty good albums throughout their career. Um they weren't as great as the first two, but I think they were still pretty good. Um, yeah. There's a lot of good stuff on those. It's so fascinating how this has shifted over time because, you know, like I said, I feel like for a long time, maybe post Last Waltz, Robbie Robertson 
was so much more famous than the other guys in the band. But then starting with the publication of Levon Helm's book, basically, Robbie Robertson has become this villain figure, essentially, in, in rock music. Was that the first time that people were aware of this feud? I, I, that was For me, that was how I learned about it, was Levon's book. Was there any indication before that? I, I didn't see anything when I was kind of brushing up for this in any kind of interview. I don't, that, of, of, yeah, I don't think it was like as, as known. As, I mean, I feel like that, because that book is famously vitriolic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so I I think that was the first shot. And, you know, like I said, I interviewed Robbie about a year or two ago, and I've always thought of him as a villain. You know, I had the villain <laughs> idea in my head with him for a long time. And, and I'll say that talking to him, it did change my mind a little bit. Also, just the, just the passage of time, I think, changed my mind. I mean, look, whatever you want to say about Robbie Robertson, he played – on some of the greatest music for me that's ever been made. So it was hard for me to be too judgmental, especially when I was talking to him. If he had only just been the guy that played on Dylan's 66 tour, you know, because <laughs> his guitar playing on that yeah. tour is unbelievable. I mean, he is a great guitar player. Um, you know, I would have been in awe of him. But, you know, he's done a lot of great things um, in his career, even with all of this negative baggage and, and all the, the negative mojo with, with Levon. And, you know, he's also one of the only guys left in this band. So yeah. it's like... What do they say? Like, history is oh. written by the victors. And I think that's a lot of what people are taking offense to with the documentary, too. I mean, right. that now the last word belongs to him because Garth uh, isn't up to, to, to speaking for whatever reason. Well, I think... Uh, I, and so he can dictate the narrative. And I think that backfired on him. I think if he had made a movie where he was more honest and he had taken on some of his villain baggage head on that that movie would have been more effective, you know? Oh yeah. Like the David Crosby documentary where he basically says, yeah, I, I was a dick to everybody who was in a band with, and now everyone hates me. I, I screwed up. I, it, and that was such a, it was one of my favorite document rock documentaries I've ever seen. It was amazing. And and if he'd gone that route, yeah, it would have been a much more compelling documentary, but I don't think that's who he is. Yeah. I think I think people are going to look at that now and there's going to be people who don't know much about the band and they're going to enjoy that at face value. But anyone who really loves the band, that's just going to close the book again on Robbie Robertson that, okay, he's just a glory hog again. And everything that we always thought about him was true. And this documentary confirms it because it's just like hagography basically. Um, So coming into our conclusion here, and this is the part of the episode where we, we always try to find a moment of, of peace and reconciliation between our rivals. Um, you know, I said at the top of the episode that this is a very melancholy uh, rivalry for me because I do feel like these guys genuinely were friends at one point. And more than that, they really did need each other and they brought out the best in each other. Um, and, you know, we've said it a couple times. I mean, they never made as great a music apart as they did together. And I think the combination of like what Levon represented culturally as well as just his fantastic musicianship and, and vocal ability combined with Robbie's ability as a songwriter and as a conceptualist, it just created this magical combination um, that unfortunately just was not meant to last. Yeah, there's a, a a friend of mine, one of my favorite journalists, his name's Alex Heigl, and he'd written a piece where he basically described the, the band as uh, – 
as a socialist experiment that that, went, that then was ruined by by capitalism. You had somebody like Robbie Robertson who saw an opportunity and took it. Where in, when they were making the Brown album, they were out in L.A. at uh, at Sammy Davis Jr.'s house and they drew straws for who was going to get which room. And it was just very much the, this communal exercise of, of, of musical socialism. And I think Levon's sense of betrayal that that one could take opportunities that would benefit just themselves uh, really soured him for the rest of his life, I think. But it, you're absolutely right. They were never better than they were together. Like so many bands and musical partnerships, they they brought out the best in each other and and, and pushed each other and challenged each other yeah. and inspired each other. I th- Dude, I am bummed, man. I th- I think after, we're, after this episode, I'm going to get a bottle of whiskey and just listen to Whispering Pines on repeat <laughs> and cry my eyes out. <laughs> It's a bummer, man, oh. talking about this. I wish they could have made it work. There should have been way more great band records, but I guess we should just be grateful for the music that appreciate. we appreciate. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, I'm going to go crawl into a hole with a bottle right now and listen to Whispering Pines. <laughs> so call me when it's time to record another episode. All right, I'm going to go listen to Neil Diamond and try to cheer up. <laughs> All right, man. Till the next time. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.